1: Brian Thank you for hopping aboard for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zimrak. This is episode 590 of the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, Jim Piddock will be joining us right here on On Screen and Beyond. Now, he, of course, has been in The Mighty Wind, Best in Show, Austin Powers gold member mascots, and so many things, just on and on. We could name things that he's done. And he has a new memoir out. It's called Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. Now, we've got a lot of stuff to talk to him about. Jim Piddick is coming up in a few minutes, so get ready for that. And also, uh, as we get ready for Croftcom coming up in uh, May... That's coming our way, and we are going to be having guests who will be at CroftCon in Rinda, California, and uh, they will be there for signings and uh, lectures about what went on and all the different shows that Sid and Marty Croft made and things like that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we'll have more information on that coming up, but we will have a guest coming up very shortly. Actually, a couple of guests have already uh, committed and we've got more coming our way. So get ready. That is going to be a lot of fun. And if you get a chance, be sure to go over there to the Orinda Theater in Orinda, California and uh, check that out. CroftCon coming in May and we'll uh, let you know more about it. So you can look online and find out all about it. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, let's see, we also have uh, some other great guests coming our way who are not affiliated with CroftCon, but uh, we are going to be having them coming away. It's going to be a lot of fun, just a lot of episodes coming up as we edge towards 600 episodes of On Screen and Beyond. That's not too far away. And uh, if you have a request for a guest, uh, you can send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And we will try to do what we can to get that person on. So what do you say? Let's get into it. It's time for Remake Madness on On Screen and Beyond try again. Remake Madness. Well, it looks like the remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is actually the origin story of Willy Wonka, and it's going to be called Wonka. We've told you about this, and uh, it's been moved already. <laughs> it's, it's, it was coming out in March 17th, 2023. Well, they've bumped it even back further. It is now going to come your way on December 15th, 2023. And a remake reboot of Babylon 5 is in the works over at the CW, and they say it will be re- Done from the ground up, and a reboot remake of Flashdance uh, for to a series for Paramount Plus is coming our way. And that's it for remake madness. Next on On Screen and Beyond: upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies. Well, a biopic about the Bee Gees is looking at a November fourth, two thousand twenty-two release date, and Frank Grillo will star in a thriller called Dirty. No word yet about uh, what it's about, and David Harbour. Beverly D'Angelo and others will star in a holiday thriller called Violent Night that's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond let's find out what's coming your way as far as sequels right here on On Screen and Beyond Sequels, it looks like Indiana Jones 5 has wrapped its filming, but we won't see the film in theaters tentatively until June 30th, 2023. Now, of course, things can always change about release dates nowadays. And uh, to show you that, uh, The Flash has moved its release date to from November to June 23rd, 2023, and Aquaman 2 is moves from this December 16th to March 17th 2023 so things are still ever changing here and that's it for sequels coming up next on On Screen Beyond why don't we take a little peek at what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD TV on DVD, well, The Great, Season 2, comes to DVD on April 26th. And May 3rd, you can look for The Good Fight, Season 5, as it hits DVD. And on May 10th, Kin, Season 1, lands on DVD and Blu-ray. That's it for TV on DVD. Coming up next on launch Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? (laughs) movies on dvd well april 5th scream lands on dvd blu-ray and 4k and cyrano with peter dinklage comes to dvd and blu-ray on april 19th and without remorse comes to dvd and blu-ray on may 3rd And that's it for movies on dvd coming up next on On screen beyond let's find out what's coming away as far as tv and entertainment time TV and entertainment time, well, the Umbrella Academy will premiere season three of the show on Netflix on June 22nd. And the next season, season five, will be the last for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and it is currently in production now that's a great show and uh, you know it's sad to see that it's going so it seems like it's you know so quickly because when they're saying five seasons it's you know eight shows per season that type of thing so you know it's not very much you know we need more so and sadly oscar-winning actor william hurt has passed at the age of 71 and that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Jim Piddock. He is going to be joining us from Best of the Show, Mascots, Mighty Wind, all sorts of stuff. He's next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Guest on On Screen and Beyond is an actor who we have seen in Best in Show, The Mighty Wind, Lethal Weapon 2, Independence Day, Austin Powers Gold Member, Mascots, and so many other movies and TV shows. He has a memoir coming out on March 23rd called Caught with My Pants Down and Other Stories from a Life in Hollywood. It's Jim Piddock. Jim, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's Other
0: Tales from a life in Hollywood, too.
1: Huh. I have the, the, the release in front of me. And <laughs> they didn't uh, I've, put got
0: to, I've got to fire someone immediately.
1: <laughs> now, with a title like that, Jim, I've I, I got to ask you. <laughs> yes. Did you ever get caught with your pants down? <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yes, twice. Uh, it, it, there are two stories, one, one major story, which is an entire chapter, a short chapter, I might add. Um, uh, which uh, which is, yes, exactly that. <laughs> and that's where the title of the book comes from. And there's another story where it sort of happens to, um, but not quite
1: as extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, you know, people have to read the story to f- figure that one out. But <laughs> I was just yes. curious. <laughs> there's,
0: there's a fine line between spoiler alert and teaser. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm treading that fine line very finely.
1: Yeah. So all right how did you come up with that title well it really was
0: based on an incident that happened to me um where i was um caught um it wasn't actually in hollywood that particular story but i was on a train in england and i managed to get caught with my uh pants and my I mean by pants both the American term pants and the English term pants, which is underpants, with both down and my entire um, meat and two veg on display for various other passengers on the train. Um, Without elaborating too much further to ruin the story, I will add that it was not a criminal offense in any way. It was an accidental offense, um, but it was an offense. And I feel sorry for those people who must have been quite severely traumatized. My daughter, however, found it highly amusing, <laughs> as did the friend I was going to visit on that train.
1: So there was no jail time involved. <laughs> there was
0: no jail time involved, just a lot of people dining out on the story, including myself. And it, I've actually used it in a. I did a comedy show, uh, with a bunch of other very good comedians like Eddie Izzard and Mark Steele and um, Kevin Day, or various other people in England, it was a fundraising thing. And I was am seeing it, and I'm not a stand-up, so I thought, well, I'll just tell this story, which uh, I did, and it, and it um, in front of uh, I think a thousand people. And so it sort of has lived on. Um, the the story went down quite well at that evening, and then got I got very cocky. And then proceeded to open the second act of the show with the filthiest, most offensive joke I've ever heard. But the genius of it is it's, it's extraordinarily offensive in one line. And it, and, it, and it sort of hits about five different things. And I told it to one of the other comedians backstage and said, you know, what? have you heard this joke? And they said, oh, I actually don't know that. So I told it and adjusted it for the audience. And I came out with this kind of bravado of having told this other story and it going well, and said the joke, but I had a twist on it, which I forgot to tell, but which made it cleverer um, at the end, much cleverer. But the reaction from the audience was so extreme, I forgot the twist, and actually I just went out there and told this absolutely appallingly filthy joke. And the reaction was, and I've never, never experienced this before, in the theatre, and I've been in done a lot of live shows. 500 people simultaneously burst out laughing, literally exploded, and 500 people took an intake of horrified breaths. <laughs> so there was this kind of mixture of reactions all in one, and it so threw me. And all I could say was, "Well, I guess we know where the uh, where we can draw the line tonight." and immediately, as I say, forgot the, the clever twist of the really filthy joke, um, and, and that was it. But that, that story is also in the book, um, the details of which uh, are revealed, so and the joke itself.
1: That's what I was going to ask you. The, the audience is wondering right now, is this joke in the, in the, in the book?
0: <laughs> yeah, the joke is in the book. It, <laughs> it, is, it, it, it is brilliant in its efficiency. Um, it's brilliant in its efficiency. That's all I'll say about it. <laughs> and and its offensiveness. Um, it's also quite funny. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So, what made you decide to to write a book?
0: Well, uh, it all came about because I did an evening for the Screen Actors Guild uh, called Inside the Industry, um, and it was sort of a basically me being interviewed for an hour in a two hundred seat theatre and um by uh an entertainment reporter and i kind of just winged it i didn't prepare too much i just had things i roughly wanted to talk about and i just told stories and anecdotes and they were all kind of fairly irreverent and gossipy and uh informational uh, for people aspiring to be actors or who were actors or even writers as well um and and I really enjoyed it, and the question and answer went very well afterwards, too, and and sort of the whole thing was about 90 minutes, and I came away thinking, I really enjoyed that, and I haven't been on stage, I I kind of, I used to do a lot of theatre in in New York and on Broadway and stuff, and I thought maybe I'll turn this into a one-man show, it'd be kind of fun to just go around, I wouldn't have to learn an awful lot, because I know most of these stories, and just sort of have an evening of telling these stories. And I started to write this as a one-man show, and it fast expanded to being instead of a ninety-minute one-man show, it became about ten hours. And I figured that that might stretch the patience and uh, and the time of, of of a an audience. So I then um, started to write it as a book. And then we went into lockdown for the coronavirus thing that uh, you might have heard of, um, and uh, and then I wrote the book. Hmm. So, so
1: you wrote it all during the uh, the, the, the pretty shutdown. much.
0: I mean, I had some some of it written down because I'd started the the, the one man show, and I just um, went with it from there, and and, uh, and I wrote it probably in about six months, I think.
1: Wow, geez, that's good. that's good.
0: Yeah, that's no, a- it was it was um, the hardest part was just check, double checking things because I was. Well, you know, it's not literally supposed to be fact-by-fact fact account because that would be really boring of, of things that I've done and seen and heard and witnessed. Um, but I did have to get certain names and places and dates roughly in the right place um, and then and then work from there. So there's quite a lot of kind of referencing and going back over diaries and books and appointment calendars and things. Um, but it isn't so much a biography it's more in the vein of something like Gerald Durrell or David Niven where it's as more or as much about the observed as the observer. So it's, it's, it is my story told from my point of view, but um, there is a lot of shameless name-dropping. <laughs> well, you've worked with a lot of amazing people. I have. I've worked and socialized for 40 years with... Uh, yeah... Yeah, an awful lot. Um, and one of the chapters which seems to have grabbed the attention of <clears throat> inside the industry, people who have read it, I've got, I think, 36 lovely endorsement quotes from celebrities, um, is, is um, a chapter which was about a Facebook competition I had. Uh, it was It was during the time when people were posting this ridiculous thing saying, here are ten bands, nine I've seen, one I haven't. And you're supposed to guess which one. Now, even people I know intimately, I wouldn't have a first idea which one they hadn't seen. But people I sort of know on Facebook, of which there are probably, I don't know how many friends I've got, it's over a thousand, I haven't a clue. And it seemed to me the most pointless game that was going on. So I did a variation on it, which was, here are 10 A list actors I've worked with, nine I loved, and one was a four letter word <laughs> asterisked out, sometimes referred to as see you next Tuesday. And I, I asterisk it out in the book uh, as well. Um, and, and it became a kind of de facto uh, kind of game show <laughs> sort of quiz thing. And, and I eliminated, ended up eliminating one every day for about obviously nine days, and then and then it was over. Um, but the ludicrousness of that amused me, and it garnered people's attention, which I thought was funny too. And what was great was that nobody, the, the majority of people did not guess the person, hmm. which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> and made the whole exercise, <coughs> excuse me, um, the whole exercise worthwhile. Wow. Um, so. Take a sip of water here. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Just choking on a on a peanut. Um, so, uh, yes, this is a um, complete waste of time, of course, but then Facebook is a complete waste of time. <laughs> and it was an amusing waste of time. Uh, so that appears was one of the chapters and is probably the most um, revealing in terms of A-listers hmm. uh, in terms of the chapters. Yeah.
1: So. Now you said that you got a lot of uh, uh different people from hollywood who who wrote you nice letters and everything about the about your book and everything, but uh, did you get some that that weren 't so nice um, I got some that were amusing, but none no
0: they were all uh hasn 't been to reviewers yet it was sent uh as a sort of precursor to uh, a, a bunch of kind of celebs and people actors and stuff uh, a number of whom i've worked with um and some I know, and whatever. Um, but there was there was one that I, I found amusing that Billy Connolly gave me, mm-hmm. uh, which was Sir Billy Connolly. I apologise. <laughs> and it and it was great because it, and and then I'll read you one more that's a bit more genuine. Um, this is <laughs> Billy wrote. Jim Piddock has written a book. Good for him. Jim hangs around in Los Angeles and goes to parties at Eric Idle's house where lots of famous folk ask him what he does for a living. I have always liked him. He makes me feel very famous. (laughs) People feel sorry for him because he supports Crystal Palace, who make up the numbers in the English Premier League. (laughs) So that was (laughs) Billy's roasting um, one. And then uh, one of my favorites is from someone who, is, is kind of a, what we call Marmite in England. you either love him or hate him? Is Russell Brand, who um, I've worked with Russell a couple of times, but I don't know him super well, but I've always liked him. And Russell wrote, perhaps, my dream quote. He said, Jim has done that rare thing that perhaps only Michael Caine and David Niven have done before, conjured a funny, inclusive, whimsical, and magical tale about the peculiar interior of the world of film and film stars. It's as warm and immersive as fentanyl without the social damage one hopes. That was Russell Brand.
1: <laughs> and that sounds like him, too.
0: <laughs> it sounds like him, which was lovely.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: which was lovely. So, uh, And it's sort of a dream. because uh, I, I mean, I, one of the things that <clears throat> just enchanted me growing up was reading David Niven's um, books to two memoirs about Hollywood and probably ultimately led to my fantasy of, of, of coming one day and little did I know that I would spend almost my entire career here for this. as I say I've been in in Hollywood itself since nineteen eighty five, so it's a long, long time.
1: Wow. Was was that your intention to to get to America?
0: No, not at all. When I first started out, I, I was, you know, I just thought I would start and be an English actor and work my way up through the theatre and do television and, if I was very lucky, do films. And I worked for a couple of years there and, and was sort of just starting to establish myself. And I was offered a job just to directing um, for three months uh, and uh, directing some stuff at uh, the drama school where I went to in London, opened a branch in Berkeley, California. And I' directed already at the very tender age of twenty four a couple of plays in rep in England, which um then sort of led me to to got me th- this assignment and um I came over for three months and that three months uh very quickly I did a one man show after I finished that job, which propelled me to um to New York and on to Broadway within six months um, so I had a sort of dream. Miracle start from rags to riches uh, in, in the space of about a, t- a total space of about a year of my coming to the country. Mm. Yeah. So <clears throat> I did not have any intention, and then I kept thinking, Well, I'll go back at some point. And then, then I reached the point of no return yeah. where my career had sufficiently taken off here. And then, you know, it was once you have relationships and children and houses and things, <laughs> harder and
1: harder to go back. Yeah. So so when you did come here, uh, were you looking at a specific thing? Uh, you know, being on stage, Broadway, or I, or going I did on
0: have the right to do this show that I paid. I think I had probably I was to my name. I had about two hundred dollars at that point in my life. I think I spent a hundred on getting the optioning of the rights to this play, and I had a hundred in my pocket when I came to America. And I always thought, well, if I got a chance I would try and put this show on and it was crazy because it was about an English soccer goalkeeper playing a game on a Sunday morning uh, and talking to the audience as he's playing and at that time in 1981 soccer was kind of almost unheard of and nobody really knew what it was so it was a phenomenal risk and this I knocked on every door in San Francisco and everyone told me to um, piss off quite rightly and understandably and then this small theatre's first show of the season fell through, and they called me and said, how quickly can you get your one-man show up? And um, I knew this director there who was, I rather liked, and, and we got it up in about three weeks, three to four weeks, and, and opened there in this theatre in San Francisco, and I, um, I had full, it was a 1919 theatre, I had the a, a full house on the opening night, because all the, People, the students I was directing at the, the drama school kind of were eager to see me fall flat on my face. Um, and then I had four people in the audience on the second night, which was interesting. Um, they all sat in the front row. Um, and it was rather touching, because I got a standing ovation from four people at the end of the show. Um, and it it was a high-energy 90 minutes of non-stop talking, diving, um, just, it was literally a, a feat of endurance. Anyway, the reviews came out after that second performance and um, and luckily they were kind of uh, what one could have dreamed of. And um, and the show ran, it was sold out for the next, I think it was five or six weeks. And then um, they extended it there and then it kind of got everybody's attention nationally.
1: Wow. So, so you went from four people to, <laughs> to sold out
0: Current. I went to four people to sold out, although oh. sold out is not is still only 99 seats, but then it took me to a theatre in, in Minneapolis, they booked in, and then it took me to off-Broadway. A um, very short time after I arrived in New York, I got <clears throat> my, my first ever audition. I, I, I um, uh, An agent had, had signed me on The Strength of My One-Man Show, and, and they sent me out for an audition for George C. Scott, who was directing and starring in Present Laughter on Broadway, Noel cow Play. And um, and I got cast and uh, made my Broadway debut alongside people like Nathan Lane and Kate Burton, wow. and Chris, Christine Larty and uh, Dana Ivey and various other wonderful people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and George C. Scott.
1: Yeah. So when you were writing this book, a lot of people t- who write books tell me that they find it very therapeutic, writing mm-hmm. and thinking back about what they've done throughout their lives. Did you find it that too? I didn't find it therapeutic. I, I, it, only
0: in the sense that I want. It will, I thought it would be nice <clears throat> to have as a record for my daughter, who's now in her twenties, who it, you know quite a bit of this happened before she was born, and then and, and then a whole bunch happened when she was a kid, and, and some of it she knows. The more recent stuff, obviously. But I thought it would be just nice for her, sort of. You know, this is this was my dad's life, um, and so I I wasn't thinking much beyond that. So in that sense, it was therapeutic. I found it torture, actually. I find writing screenplays and TV shows infinitely easier. Um, I think the reason being is that I tend to be someone who looks right ahead of me or far ahead of me. I don't ever really look back that much. So it was quite difficult looking back and writing. It was almost like running backwards. It was difficult for me. And... um uh, and sometimes a bit sort of uh, nostalgic, melancholy and nostalgic. Mm-hmm. But but I, but I, once I kind of had got it in some sort of shape, I did enjoy honing and shaping the stories because they, they still amused me. Um, and that's what it is, really. It's a collection of sort of fairly outrageous anecdotes, um, both within and, and outside show business, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the early ones are... are, are as extraordinary as the as the hollywood and the broadway ones but 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 they're all i made sure that i cut it down to the things that i thought were <laughs> entertaining and um and highly unusual
1: yeah so th- does it only spans the the book from when you entered hollywood no no it spans
0: it spans um i i really spend very little time on my child i can't stand biographies autobiographies where you read and someone's talking about their grandparents and their parents and their this and their that and then and you're going I don't I really don't care I just want to know about you and, and hear your story so I, I start actually with an anecdote that happened on my first day at drama school which which is a short sweet and fairly um, amusing story uh, an embarrassing story and then I kind of track back a little but it's very, very cursory, and, and and part of it was because I do actually have some fairly interesting family history related to Hollywood, in that my grandfather had a vaudeville act or music hall, as they call it in England, with Charlie Chaplin. Wow. So, and I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about my family's history in show business, which goes back many generations, because my father was given away by his father to be raised by an aunt. And so that it was sort of a family secret. And he had a very, very different job, nothing to do with show business. So I only discovered, <clears throat> as I was kind of I don't know, maybe 10, maybe into my even teens, that I had some sort of family history inside show business. And then when I was at, at drama school, I, I found uh, my half-aunt, who was an act, a former actress and, and her husband was an actor. And then I uncovered this bizarre and, and, and extraordinary history of uh, people who, who were involved and um, and so it kind of connects to, to, to my story and, and my story also is, the, the, one of the themes of the book is what, what the meaning of family is and trying to find family and my kind of eternal search, well, not eternal because I have found it now but my lo- lifelong search for a, what I consider a family and how in show business, you know, going from a play to another play to another play, or a film to a film, or a TV show to a TV show, you keep accumulating new families, mm-hmm. and I felt the need for that, and I I kind of explore that in the book of what what the meaning of family is, which becomes particularly poignant when I reach the point of adopting a child. Uh, and so it becomes about choosing a family as opposed to a family by blood or a family by work or a family by association hmm.
1: so so what did get you into the world of uh acting what 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 sparked you to want to do that
0: um i didn't want to when I was younger I wanted to be a professional footballer or a soccer player, as you would say here
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i until I was about 14 or 15, that was all I wanted to do. Um, but there was a slight hitch to that, which was, I wasn't nearly good enough. Not, not even close. I wasn't even fit to shine the boots of the apprentices who shine the professional players' boots. I was good enough to captain my school team and to play for the university second 11 and score lots of goals, and that was my limit. And I sort of knew that by the time I was 14 or 15, that I was never going to make it. And I was kind of have a a little bit of an issue with getting bored very easily. And at school, whilst being quite sort of bright and in terms of intellectually doing quite well, I was really bored doing Latin and Greek and all the awful things we had to do at school, um, which have been of very little use to me ever since. And I auditioned a year early for the school play, Um, normally you're allowed to do it when you're sort of 16 or 17. And I think I auditioned when I was 15. And to my surprise, I got cast. And I loved the whole process, partly because there were a couple of girls in it from another school. Um, So it was like a wonderful chance to kind of, um, you know, have my first crushes and stuff like that. And I remember when the play opened, standing in the wings before my first scene and feeling a kind of terror that I've never, ever felt in my life. It was a real adrenaline high and sheer terror. (laughs) And I, at that moment, it was a weird thing. I simultaneously also knew it was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Mm. It was literally an aha moment. And I think it must be the, the adrenaline high, which by the way, I, I do talk a bit about in the book, is as you get older, is less interesting. And I, and I I did a, which is why I prefer doing film and TV now, but a long shot. Uh, I don't even particularly like doing shows in front of a studio audience sitcom. But I did a play, um, a short run of a play in LA and then we played uh, a week or two in New York. It was a or a not a Centeno, it was a uh, a Celebration of Monty Python Anniversary, which Eric Idle directed and, and myself and uh, some wonderful actors were in, for, uh, four other actors. And, I, and that, I was by then I was in my, I believe I was in my 50s, and I had the same experience of standing backstage before the opening night and feeling that same sense of terror and thinking, I might actually prefer to walk out of the theatre into a restaurant and have a glass of wine and a lovely meal, uh, rather than do this. Wow. <laughs> and so it was an odd, and, and by the way, that's not to preclude the fact of me ever doing stage again, because I probably will, but and I, I talked to somebody about this, uh, a doctor, I think it was, uh, and, and they said, yeah, it's, it's, fight, it's flight or fight. When you're young, mm-hmm. as a young man, you that sort of terror makes you want to fight. So you, you're attracted by that adrenaline. And as as you get older, the tendency is flight, because you don't have the same energy or virility um, I suppose. Um, it's it's a different thing, and, and that's why I think uh, Gil, not Gil, um, Lawrence Olivier. So Laurence Olivier admitted that as he got older, he had far worse stage fright than he had as a young actor. Wow! And he almost couldn't go on in his middle middle age years. And found it paralyzing, and I found that fascinating because he's one of the obviously the all-time greats. Right. But I get it now, and I understand it because okay. so it was explained to me as <clears throat> literally a chemical biological condition, um, and maybe it's psychological too. That as you as, as you get older, I'd sort of had done that. I'd played in front of massive, thousand, two thousand seat houses, and did it for years, and um and I don't necessarily want to do eight shows a week and have all my evenings taken up with that mm. um, yeah. that's not as you grow older, that's not quite the way you want to live right well, yeah. no I don't anyway
1: yeah no no i don't I don't blame you on that
0: <laughs> yeah, I really would at eight o'clock be rather be having um a nice meal with a glass of wine <laughs> right, <laughs> but as i said there's I'd still probably will'll we'll, we'll do some short runs of things and. And just see that I can still do it and get that adrenaline flowing again in, in, a, in a way that's fun. Yeah. yeah. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your
1: cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This
0: product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Now, Jim, uh, you've done a lot of notable movies and TV shows, but one of the biggest ones that a lot of people remember you from is Best in Show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. uh How was it working on that, and how did you get the part?
0: Well, I had met uh, Eugene Levy. Um, I knew him socially reasonably well. I'd actually met Chris a couple of times very briefly, but I knew Eugene a little better and Catherine O'Hara. And I got a call one day from Eugene saying, uh, we're looking for someone in this new show that Chris and I are doing, because I'd I'd really loved Waiting for Guthman and obviously Spinal Tap. And so we're doing this new show about dog show and we're looking for somebody um, to, to, to be a commentator with Fred Willard <clears throat> because no one else wants to be dwarfed by him. <laughs> He's too funny. So I went in and met with them at Castle Rock and it was a, one of the most uncomfortable meetings you could imagine because both Chris and Eugene are, um, how shall I put this delicately, uh, I love them both dearly, but they're socially slightly uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so I walked and I sat down on the couch and um, it was kind of a bit like pulling teeth and I found myself babbling a bit uh, to just fill out all the awkward pauses and things. And after kind of a few minutes, I thought this is kind of getting a bit silly. So I said, look, here's a DVD, which we used in those days, um, of kind of some of the stuff I've done. And if it looks like it's right, you know, just please let me know, and and I and I left, and I wasn't thinking much more of it. And I'm driving home, and as I'm driving home, I get a call in my car. So and I answered it, and its voice said, "Is this Jim?" I said, "Yes, yes." Said, this is Christopher Guest. Uh, hi, hi, Chris. Um, would you like to be in the movie? <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> um, Chris. I've since worked with many times and have written with Chris, I've written Mascots with him and then Family Tree the series and and so I worked with him on that level and and he, he always says that he knows fairly instinctively he doesn't audition people, he meets them and talks to them and he gets a gut feeling of whether they can improvise and can do what, you know his sort of stuff so that's how I ended up in it and then a problem arose because I was also I'd written um, this series for the BBC, which was about to be made, and I was producing it also. And uh, the dates clashed with the, the days. I, had, I only had three days on, three or four days, I think they wanted me best in show in Vancouver, but I was in London doing this sitcom um, for the BBC. But luckily, everyone was very flexible, and the BBC let me. Do the read-through on a Monday morning of the sitcom in London, give my notes to the director and actors, get on a plane to Vancouver where I arrived on the Monday night. I had dinner on the Monday night with Chris, Eugene, and uh, Fred Willard, and then I was supposed to shoot the following day, um, but they said they were running a day behind, so they, I was going to shoot on the Wednesday instead of the Tuesday. So I had the Tuesday off, which was great, because I was really jet-lagged. And then on Wednesday, on Tuesday night, they said, oh, we're still running behind. We'll have to bump it to Thursday. And we said, okay, fine. So then on Wednesday night, they said, we, we'd like to do it on Friday. And I said, i got to remind you, I actually have to be back in London on Friday. I have to leave on Thursday night. <laughs> So if we do it on Thursday, we'll have to do all whatever you want me to do with Fred in one day. And that's what we did. Wow. Well, they had shot all the dog show stuff. So we saw that on monitors. And they had an empty stadium with some extras behind us to make it look like it was full. And we just literally shot from, I would imagine it was dawn till dusk. It was. It was more than that. I mean, it must have been ten hours at least, um, non-stop, just one after the other, after the other. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that, given that, Fred and I are in that film for probably a good twenty to twenty-five minutes, the last chunk of the film. I would think that maybe the most amount of film that's ended up with the shortest amount of shooting time. Oh,
1: so
0: in one day. I mean, that's yeah, that's incredible. uh, and then that was it. And then I had to fly back. I had to race to the airport after we finished shooting and fly back to London. And I arrived on Friday and in time for the dress rehearsal and the taping of the show in front of a studio audience on Friday night. That was quite a
1: busy week. And you must have been wiped.
0: <laughs> I was young in those days and I was wiped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was absolutely wiped. Um, but 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 bizarrely, uh, that that show, that week's show turned out to be very good. The one, the sitcom. Um, yeah. So I kind of wondered if it was better if I wasn't around during yeah. the week.
1: Now, best in show was what you did? Tightly scripted, or was uh, it...
0: no, not at all. I mean, it was the way Chris works. As we write, you know, uh, he and Eugene wrote that one. Uh, very very detailed outlines. And then the scenes, particularly those ones, because it was literally us commenting on what we were seeing on the monitors. Um, So Chris would say, okay, this is now the the hound group or the the whatever group, uh, and uh, off you go. Uh, And um, Jim, you know, you need to provide information. So I'd, I'd done tons of research from a book that Chris gave me called The American Kennel Club thing, and it was this thick Bible that was the most tedious Thing I've ever read, and I would study it every night in London while I was working on the other show, and then I so I kind of pretended to know a lot about dogs, and my remit was to be the straight man, you know, and and try and keep it on track, because I had been warned that he was going to be fairly outrageous and do a kind of Joe Garagiola type character, but uh, but they deliberately didn't want me to know what he was planning to say because he'd gone over that with. and and Eugene so it was literally we just rolled and and Fred drove the car and I rode shotgun and um, it just was one of those lucky magical things where the chemistry was perfect because I was jet lagged so kind of slightly stunned by everything and and I just reacted as best I could and in a way that I thought would enhance what he was doing because he was clearly hilarious and my job was to keep a straight face where i could and if i couldn't to make it believable that the guy found that vaguely amusing and then to get increasingly annoyed and finally sort of i and again this wasn't planned but but i kind of and it was edited superbly by chris because it just showed the sort of slow build of me getting more and more exasperated and annoyed by him to the point that when he finally says something outrageous, tells a joke, and I just turn to him and say, yes, I remember you said that last year, and just literally stick the knife straight in his back, (laughs) Um, which was the perfect end to that whole whole through line of what we did. Um, Although my very favorite moment, and this is a great learning curve for me as an actor, was when he said something so outrageous, I couldn't actually think of a response that was appropriate. And I literally just did a slow turn to him, stared at him, turned back, and then continued as if nothing had (laughs) happened. And it's still my favorite moment of my stuff in that film. It was completely wordless. And it taught me so much about acting with a small A rather than a capital A, because I'd always tended to be quite, quite not broad, but certainly, you know, I could, be out there and very in your face mm-hmm, with yeah. my comedy and I just loved the idea that you could you could just do something so throwaway and so subtle and it, and it to me was a a wonderful eye opener and I think it changed the way I approached comedy from that moment on
1: now was it tough for you not to to you know just break down and crack up uh, or or the people around you too the the crew how how did they
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean the crew are pretty disciplined because you you can ruin great improvisation right. by, yeah. by laughing, so that they tend to explode after the Chris has said cut um, there were a couple of times I, I believe I did go, and they, those obviously that didn't end up in the movie and there are a couple of moments if you watch the movie again, you can see me starting to laugh, but it works, and I, and I know Chris left it in because it was like very legit that this guy might be. Sort of amused by this at the beginning, and and, mm-hmm. and and you know politely, kind of you know chuckling or just smiling, and so it, it works on that level. But but those were genuinely me trying not to completely lose it.
1: Yeah, but in the back of your mind, are you also thinking I can't laugh because I got to get on a plane and get to London? <laughs> I mean, you're well, in a, <laughs> you're an. was that too.
0: It <laughs> was that too. Uh, there was always that ticking clock going in uh, in the background which was which is good it, yeah. gave, it gave us some energy i think
1: wow so I, I take it there's all stuff about this in the book yes and, yeah. uh once again everybody should be looking out on march 23rd uh caught with my pants down and other tales from a life in hollywood correct that's it <laughs> very good <laughs> Now, Jim, I'd like to finish up with one final question. There's so many other things we could talk about, but I know we have to finish up. Sure. But um, when you sit back and relax, mm-hmm. what are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what's your favorite movies now and of the past? Um,
0: my favorite movie is kind of a cult movie that I believe is also a favorite of a lot of comedians like Steve Martin and various other people a british film called with nail and i um which introduced richard e grant to the screen and to this day it's for me one of the great um dark comedies that's ever been made i I just love it um and i've watched it probably more than any other film i mean in terms of other films the big ones i I i love the first two godfathers um there are, there are so many.
1: Everybody you know. says the first two. They, they always say specify the first two. Oh,
0: yeah, the third one was awful. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it wasn't awful. That's wrong. That's incorrect. It was just nowhere close. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of comedies, I love trains, planes, and automobiles, um, mm-hmm. uh, those types of movies. Um, uh, what was the other question? TV or shows. Was... Oh, TV shows. Um, I love Freaks and Geeks. Uh, I, I still think that's one of the great, greatest shows that's been on the air. I loved a show which a lot of people that are involved in Freaks and Geeks also did, which I did an episode of, and that's how I discovered it. I didn't know about it until I was in it. And then I went back and watched them all and absolutely adored it, a show called Party Down that was, uh, I think, I believe it ran two seasons and is coming back. It's making a comeback very soon. Yeah. So I loved that. Um, going further back, I think probably... You know, people say what's the greatest sitcom of all time, um, and a lot of people would say Friends. And I, I, I liked Friends. I, I was in an episode, and yes. I enjoyed it. It wasn't, you know, my favourite by any means. I, I would say Mash would be my mm-hmm. all-time American sitcom uh, favourite. I thought it was because it was about something. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was it was as a marvellous a marvellous series, and the fact that they kept that. At that level, for so long, is I think an extraordinary achievement.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've I've had several of the uh, actors from that that show on, and um, uh-huh. it's it, it was it was excellent show.
0: Oh, it was outstanding. I'm actually reading right now um, Alan Alder's uh, autobiography, which was called um, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed, which is a wonderful
1: title for a book. <laughs> Um, not as good as Caught With Your Pants Down <laughs> and other tales from the life, uh, from life in Hollywood. <laughs> it's not as provocative.
0: It's not as provocative. But then I don't think Alan Alda is
1: quite as provocative
0: as me. He's probably far politer and uh, far more esoteric. No, I, I like high and I like low, which is why I loved Monty Python growing up, because I like smart mm-hmm. <clears throat> humor that... Appeals to the smartest, cleverest, cleverest, <laughs> I can't say the word, cleverest of us all. And also I love silly, you know, playing to the gallery, really silly humor. So I, I love I love stuff that's... Um,
1: well, if you like Monty Python, you, you, you must have been thrilled when you, you got to know Eric Idle then.
0: Yes, uh, there's, a, there's kind of a story in the book about that, the chapter on that, and where we met on this, on the, one of the worst films ever made. I mean, it's literally it won every Razzie Award imaginable, and is still, I think, on IMDb's top ten worst films of all time. But Eric and I met on that about 20 years ago, and immediately hit it off. And it was one of those wonderful cases of meeting your childhood idol, whose name was Eric Idol, idol. <laughs> and um, and and it being everything you wanted and more. And and um, I'm I'm delighted to say that he's almost certainly my my best closest friend in 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 America wow, and we spend you know a lot of time together and in Europe too because he has a place in Provence and and um i've been out there many 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 times, so in the summers we tend to get together as well wow, but then he lives fairly close to me in the hills in the the grand hills of hollywood, okay. so yes that was um that's uh it Was a lovely, a lovely thing that happened, and a, quite a nice story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Jim, I, I cannot thank you enough. I, I, I could listen to you for hours telling your stories. I mean, it's, it's well, just, well, thank you. Uh, and uh, you've been babbling on. Oh well, no, sure. geez, it, it's, it's 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 very interesting. <laughs> but um, so once again, I want to remind people to go out on March 23rd and get caught with my pants down and other tales from a life in Hollywood. And Jim, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and I wish you luck with the book.
0: Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Jim Pidick, great guest right here on on screen and beyond. Hope you enjoyed that one, and it's so much fun hearing him talk about Best in Show and the other movies he's been in and things like that. Is it just I could listen to him for hours? <laughs> it's just just so much fun. And don't forget on March twenty third, check out his memoir called Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from A Life in Hollywood going to be a great one so be sure to check that out and we appreciate him taking the time to talk to us here at on screen and beyond well we've got more and more and more and more guests coming to on screen and beyond and it's thanks to you for turning around and telling friends and you know uh, listening to on screen and beyond downloading that's so important that you download all the episodes of on screen and beyond it will help get our numbers up as far as people listening and of course. Then we get more people who are willing to come on because the more people that are listening, the more people they want to talk to. So uh, it's just, you know, uh, really nice that you're doing that. And be sure to tell a friend uh, so we get uh, more and more people listening to On Screen and Beyond. Subscribe for sure. Uh, that helps, too, and gets more people to know about On Screen and Beyond. We've been around for a long, long time, but there's still a lot of people out there who don't know about us, and they can still go to our back catalog and listen to all these episodes of these fascinating people. Uh, you know, Bob Barker and uh, Peter Tork of the Monkees and, and just so many other people that we've had. It's just, I look back and I think, wow, we've had all these people, and uh, it's not going to stop. We've got some more coming your way, so uh, get ready because it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, also uh if you have a chance if you could leave us a review on any of the places where you're downloading these episodes of On Screen and Beyond that always helps too let's uh, other people know that you enjoy it we hope you'd leave a five star review that's uh, you know it's, that's the best thing you can do for us and also uh we we you know we're not doing anything as f- yet uh, hope hope we don't have to but as far as advertisements and things like that we you know we may have to get to that point to try to keep you know, some money coming in so I can pay for this stuff. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, um, you know, uh, we, but but the way you can help right now is just to turn around and download. That's that's the big thing, and also. Uh, get the word out about On Screen and Beyond. So we appreciate it. You know, if if you catch us on Twitter, because we are putting up on Twitter uh, about our old episodes and everything, and the new episodes too, obviously. And if you could retweet those, that would be good. If you're on Instagram, be sure to like it and, uh, you know, whatever else you do on there and on Facebook or wherever. But uh, just keep that word moving about On Screen and Beyond. Oh, and by the way, uh, I wanted to let you know that uh, if you haven't heard, uh, you can vote for On Screen and Beyond as far as you know your favorite podcast by going to podcastmagazine.com, and you can turn around and vote for us. You can do it once a day is how it's done, and you can vote for us. Vote every day, you know, get us up there. We actually moved from number 44 in February, to number i don't know somewhere around 18 19 or something like that we were the biggest mover on the hot 50 podcasts and uh, we were the biggest mover and we hope we can keep moving up on the charts and we appreciate it very much so you can go to podcastmagazine.com and you can go to i think it says hot 50 and then there you can vote and they ask for your name and all that stuff but you don't have to do that you can just turn around put down the uh, show on screen and beyond. You can they ask for the host. That's Brian Zimrak. And then you don't have to vote for others. You can, you can vote for up to three, but uh, if you would do that and then you just push submit, like I say, you don't have to put your name in there. They ask you if you want to subscribe to the magazine, all that. But you don't have to do that. Just say, no, we don't want to. Uh, but uh, whatever you want to do. And uh, that's, uh, you know, something that helps out also because it's going to get the word out about On Screen and Beyond. So keep doing that, too. Vote, vote, vote. All right. And uh, we thanks so much for it. It's just amazing to me that all these people have been voting for us uh, I, you know two months ago i didn't even know this existed so <laughs> if you could do that that would be another help for us and we appreciate it very much so that's it that's a wrap for this episode of on screen and beyond so until next time when we once again take you on screen and beyond i'm brian zemrak take care